My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? At the same time, you need true believers spreading this ideology by themselves, and that's going to get people hooked into it. But then it, it kind of freaks me out because then you see Heaven's Gate of these UFO cults and stuff. Like the Mormons are all into the UFO stuff. It's weird. One of the things that they were talking about in that paper, too, is that we need to get everybody on kind of on the same page with this. And like Freemasonry work is a great way to get people on board, with, like get a bunch of different people on, like, on the same page in the past. So let's try to do something like that. Okay, you know. Yeah. And I don't mean to bring it back to the Freemasons. I don't think that there's like some grand Freemasonic conspiracy, but I think it's, you know, I think different groups know the power of symbols and imagery and ideas, and they're just recycle a lot of these ideas and put a modern lens on it. I think most, I think a lot of sci fi that we have is just, it's just a cult. It's just all the cult ideas repackaged with modern technology. You know, it's our modern myths. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. Thank you for joining me today. Episode 111. Got a lot going on, a lot of changes. Before we get to the show, be sure to show us some love on Patreon, patreon.com slash MFTIC. That's where you can find all of our exclusive content, all of our bonus content. We just had four new patrons sign up. I got to give them shout outs real quick. Shout out to Chance Garten, host of the Interverse podcast. Your spirit animal name is the Healing Tarantula, aka the Medicine Tarantula. We also have Divided Being. Shout out to you, Divided Being. Thank you for joining the show. Your spirit animal name is Thunder Bear. Look at that. Next up, we have Andrea or Andrea. I'm pretty sure it's Andrea because she's a female. Shout out to you, Andrea. You are the changing wolf. And then we have Sean. Sean, I'm not sure. I might have given you a shout out already, but either way, shout out to you, brother. You are the all-knowing moth right on. We have so many other folks that have joined the Patreon recently. So join today 
and get a spirit animal name divined from not one but two decks of tarot cards we'd love to have you in our telegram group as well a lot of folks joining the telegram we're almost at 100 in the telegram so join the telegram and instagram too we got a lot of people on the grams show me some love on instagram send a message follow like subscribe stay up to date with the show i'm always posting clips and artwork there so you can see what episodes are coming out and last but not least we got a rockfin rockfin.com slash mftic just search my family thinks i'm crazy or mystic mark check out all the video content we got going on for the show each episode from here on out will be put on rockfin i promise i will remember to record the video version of the show in the zoom i promise you that and i will also promise you to turn my notifications off when i record an intro that was very rude this is why i need a co-host i am open to co-hosts so you know i don't know how i'm gonna meet this person maybe i already know this person but i definitely think that it would steady me if i had a co-host on the show let me know what you think leave us a message at podinbox.com mftic and with that folks onto the show all right ladies and gentlemen welcome to the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast we have an artist a tattooist and an esoteric seeker with us today for a conversation about ancient history ancient culture the esoteric and occult symbols found within ancient cultures and how that's inspired today's guest henry to integrate a spiritual style of art into his modern tattoo style it was a pleasure talking to henry he's a very intelligent dude who's on the same wavelength as me we're looking into a lot of things so this conversation went a little bit all over the place we talked about esoteric symbols and ancient cultures we even talked about how that relates to ufos psychedelics architecture and the you know paradigm that we're all living under the top-down hierarchy of control so keep your head up out there shout out to all our international listeners we love you in australia my aussies shout out to you mates shout out to everybody in england shout out to all my brothers in ireland shout out to all my friends in canada eh? and everywhere else you know we got a lot of love in norway sweden we got some love continental european countries shout out to you france germany romania bulgaria estonia i know them all i used to be a geography whiz in, in school south america we're still we're still slacking a little bit we got some homies in brasilia but other than other than brazil south america's slacking a little bit show us some love in south america uh southeast asia we're still slacking a little bit show us some love down in asia and with that enjoy this conversation with henry hablack my man my dude an artist a tattooist someone who i just bought a t-shirt from show him some love he's got some great art on his website henryhablack.com h-a-b-l-a-k henry hablack that's right this intro's gone long on enough on long enough i realize that folks but what do you care this is a free podcast and you can skip the intros if you really want pretty soon i might even do longer intros let me know 
if you like the intros, let me know. Maybe I'll go longer. Maybe I'll go shorter. I don't know what to do, folks. I'm just going to do what makes me feel happy. And if enough of you give me some positive suggestions, maybe I'll alter the show. That's cool because I think this is a, a crowdsource type thing. You know, we are all working on this podcast together, the listeners and me. Uh, a lot of guests have come on the show who said, hey, I've heard you before. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, that's totally cool. I'm open to that. We've had people reach out and say, hey, you ought to have this person on. That was the case for Michelle Gibson. I hadn't heard of her before. And people were like, hey, 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 you got to get Michelle Gibson on Tinfoil. You got to get Michelle Gibson on your show. Please hit me up. M-F-T-I-C podcast at gmail.com. Share your criticisms, share your thoughts, share your compliments. They're all welcome. Podinbox.com slash M-F-T-I-C. Henry, you're a G. Thank you for joining me on the show. I know you said you're going to listen to this, so shout out to you. Without further ado, Henry Hoblock, artist, tattooist, esoteric journeyman. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. And on today's show, we have a very special guest. He's someone who I've been aware of through his art for many years. And synchronistically, that landed him on an episode of Zero. Right around the same time, he had actually reached out to Sam himself to get on the show. And I found that like super synchronistic. Henry Hablock, how are you, brother? What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing great, brother. I'm doing great. I don't remember where I first found you. It was definitely through Instagram, but there was a, a point in my life around 2018 where I went to Philly like two times for a friend that had moved there. And I, that, to my best of my memory, that's somehow the time period when I became familiar with your work, whether just because the whole Skynet was watching me and started suggesting like Philly artists for me to follow or what it was, but I, I became aware of your work. I was very impressed and, and just kind of, I, I don't have any tattoos. So I was always like thinking like, Oh, if I was going to get one, when I get one, this would be probably one, one artist that I reach out to just because your art is so unique. And then, yeah, like I kind of mentioned there, synchronistically, Sam gave me this wonderful opportunity to work for him. So I'm like, oh, crap, I got to find some guests. And I rushed to, to Instagram, one of the, the better places to find to get in touch with people back then. And you responded and you joined him for a really cool conversation. I think it'll actually be out pretty soon on his uh, Zero RSS feed. But since then, have you done any more podcasting? Was that your first podcast? It's my first one. I've corresponded with a few people in emails. There's a couple guys that I consider probably friends of mine now that I talk to. But I, I don't do a lot of interviews because, I mean, I kind of let my art usually speak for itself. And I, I don't like to throw myself out there that much. You know what I mean? Because I, I feel like a lot of my audience... They don't really give a shit about what I have to say. They're just coming to look at me because I make some some pictures. And I would say maybe like a quarter of them kind of are interested in some of this like symbolism and just the kind of stuff that I'm that I'm making. I kind of know kind of know like about what it is. And then the rest of them are just like, oh, that's cool. What is it? That's what I get a lot of. So I think it's kind of it's kind of funny that way. 
I hear that. And I definitely am part of that camp in the sense that I, for a while, I just, even before I had a podcast, I was just following you because every week I would see some cool shit and it's like, oh, all right, what's he got this time? And, and just show you some love with the likes and whatnot. But one thing that you did when, uh, when I hooked you up with the, the Sam Tripoli thing, you sent us some art in the mail, some of which I sent over to Sam and the rest of which I have with me. And I've kind of given it to friends and here and there as little cards and whatnot. But yeah, I, I get that. As someone who's not an artist, I totally, it's like a little foreign to me to the feeling. And I, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable place by being like, oh, what does this mean? And, and all that. So we don't have to get into your art. I definitely agree that it speaks for itself. And, and the links will be in the description of the show so people can check it out while they're listening. But one thing that really struck me over the past year is Philadelphia itself being kind of this magical place. And when I was re-examining a lot of the episodes that Sam and I have worked out for Zero, he's got this project that we're working on. I was going back, I was listening to your conversation and I'm wondering, where does this journey start for you? Are you from Philadelphia? Do you think the art in Philadelphia somehow played into you taking on this path in life? I think it's funny that I live here now because when I, I grew up like right outside of here and I lived in, in the city since I was 18. I, I lived in Atlanta for a little while too. And I've traveled extensively. And I think that's kind of where I got like interested in a lot of just different things. I was going to a lot of like used bookstores and stuff and I was making a lot of art and I was listening to a lot of actually podcasts and like lectures about history and stuff because I would, I would be in my studio for sometimes like eight, 10 hours a day. And I just needed something to listen to, to like keep me going while I was painting or whatever. And just, just listening to a lot of the stuff and then just realizing how, how trenched in symbolism this city really is, you know, just there's Masonic stuff like all over the place here you know i should give you a funny anecdote so philadelphia is built like on a on a grid when they build it they put city hall in the middle of it and it's actually synchronized to a to a date to a sunrise date there's like if you stand in the middle of city hall there's four doors one ports one points north east south and west and funny enough it's synchronized to october 13th which is the day that they burned jack malay at the stake, who was like the head of the Knights Templar. Wow. Yeah. So on the 13th, they actually went there. I've been trying to go there for a couple of years on that day at sunrise to come see the, the uh, sunrise in this arch that last year was cloudy. So I didn't get to make it this year. I actually showed up there, but with like you, so you're in the middle of this city hall and then the, the two main streets like intersect like broad street and market street. And you look down market and supposedly east on market, the sun's supposed to rise. But now they've built all this construction on the waterfront, so you can't really see like the sun rising down there. But there's a zodiac in the middle of it. Like it's obviously what it was there for, and that's that's the date that it was when they built it, synchronized it to, which is really interesting. It just shows how much that the people who built a lot of this architecture cared about these symbols and how much astrology and stuff played into it too, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. My birthday is October 11th, so when you said that, I was like. My ears perked up a little bit, but I'm wondering if you looked into the Templar connection any further and, and why they might have associated it with that day. Well, it's the day that Malay was burned at the stake, I believe. It's also, I think, where we get the origins for like Friday the 13th, because I think it was on a Friday as well, and how that's associated with bad luck. But there's a Masonic Hall just to the north 
Like it's one of the biggest buildings in the city besides city hall. And it's just North of city hall, which to me symbolizes that like, you know, the Masons are above the government basically, you know? And I don't know how much that's true anymore. Cause I think a lot of these things kind of like change their shape and form, but I mean, Masonry was huge in this country it was, and these secret societies. If you wanted any sort of prominent position in government or anything else, you're usually a member of one of these things. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm not a podcaster who's going around pointing the finger at Freemasons thinking that they're the, the, the source of all evil. I definitely have been on podcasts where that uh, conversation has been brought up. But yeah, I, I think I think that's a really interesting point you just made. When we consider the history of the United States, you cannot parse out the influence that secret societies have had, whether it be Freemasons or any other. But what's interesting is in Philadelphia, one thing that I learned when I was there last time was that there's more churches in Philadelphia than any other city in the United States. Is that accurate? Am I misremembering that? Have you heard that before? I haven't heard that, but I would believe it. I mean, where I live in my neighborhood, there's a Catholic uh, church down the block from me. There's another one, two blocks from that. There's another one, two blocks from that. And there's some of the oldest buildings. And I mean, if you think about it, like hundreds of years ago, these would have been like meeting places for the community. Like, so who was the biggest landowner? Who had the most money? It's like the church for the most part, you know? So yeah, I could, I could totally see that. And yeah, I mean, it looks like it from where I live. <laughs> right on. So living in Philly, have you ever run into anybody who have, you know, given you that suspicion? Anybody that admittedly said they were in a group like that or anything, any interactions with them? Or is it more of just that we see their buildings? Because I drive around, I go all over, I see the buildings, but I never see like a ceremony or anybody in front of the buildings. They seem like yeah. uh, husks for the most part. Yeah, for the most part, it seems like that that isn't um, happening anymore so much. I, do, I know I have quite a few friends who are Freemasons and they're really great people. I have no problem with them. And I think like a lot of it is organized like what, like around your lodge, you know, and I'm not an expert on Freemasonry or anything, but I mean, you could have all different types of people depending on like where you're from or what kind of lodge you're joining, you know, and some of them get like, can get really conspiratorial, like the P2, like Vatican lodge that one but i mean for the most part nowadays i think a lot of it is just guys that want to like get together with other dudes who probably like want to have either do charity or just like have other people to hang out with and socialize with you know what i mean but that's that's probably more of like my socioeconomic background you know what i mean i'm not some millionaire which i'm, I'm imagining your uh, lodges would be a little bit different you know if you've got a little bit of money and that's the kind of people that you're uh, associating with you know yeah. Yeah. I know that all too well as someone who lives near Yale University. That's the very, very much a culprit in that whole uh, world. And the Skull and Bones, Secret Society, Scroll and Key, Wolf's Head. I've actually been inside of the Wolf's Head Lodge as a, a bakery delivery guy. I just had a, a delivery there because it's a science wing of the Yale University now. And I showed a little interest and the woman who let me in was like, oh, I'll give you a tour. And she <laughs> showed me through the whole building. And I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. In the dining room, they had like this strange balcony that overlooked the whole dining hall. So I imagine they would have some kind of ceremonies or at least somebody up there reading something or, or giving a, a speech or whatever. But it's definitely, you know, 
when whether it be Philadelphia, New Haven, or whatever city you're in, you definitely get the impression that there are layers to society. And you could be in the same place as somebody else, but if you're not in that level, you're not going to be aware of what's going yeah. on. There's, there's, well, yeah, I, that's a lot of like what I notice now because I'm just studying like symbolism for so long and I walk around the city and stuff that I've seen a hundred times. Like, I'm like, oh, there's Hermes. There's, there's this God, you know what I mean? And it's all over all like the court buildings, like the, basically the most important buildings here all look like Greek temples. They have Greek gods all over them. You know what I mean? Right. Um, they're just it's at a certain level, it's like their belief system is like in the architecture, in the statues, you know, and if you know what you're looking for, you've, you you kind of can't not see it, you know? Right. Right. Um, and F Philadelphia stands out as like, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen more statues in any other city, but like you drive around Philly and there are just statues in every park. There are statues on the corner of streets. It's, it's full of artwork and, with the the lens that you have, yeah, I can imagine you see a lot of a lot of things starting to add up. Do you think that there's any weight to this idea that all of these buildings were existing before colonial times? Because you hear that a lot now with the Tartaria stuff. They point at architecture and how cool it looks, and they're like, "This nobody they couldn't have built that." But you know, what are your know. thoughts on that? I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I haven't looked into that that much. I, I've heard about Tartaria stuff. It's interesting, but I mean, I think a lot of it is like emulating this Greek Greco-Roman um, society. I think these like founding fathers kind of wanted to reproduce and reuse the same Native American sites. So like a lot of these really important buildings in this city, um, one of them is the art museum, which looks like a giant Greek temple. And it's it's in the middle of a place called, it's on the edge of a place called Fairmount Park, right on the edge of a river, which is another one of these like liminal symbolic places. And it's built on a, like on a hill almost, right? I did a little dig into that a couple of years ago. And I, and I learned that the natives, I think, used to have rituals on top of this hill. And they used to like have bonfires or whatever. And that's where you get the name. It's called Fairmount Park now, but apparently it used to be called Firemount Park. So it's like wow. another way they just like change their name, you know, and then we yeah. we kind of just put our stuff on top of it. Same way they would put like churches on top of like Neolithic sites all over Europe or wherever. You right. Know? We, we, right. Keep doing this. It's, we just keep doing the same thing. You just appropriate the places of power. Whoever's in power just says, well, we own this now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No. Wow. That's yeah. Right on the Schuylkill River there, you have the, the Fairmount and I never heard that connection before, fair and fire, but that that definitely brings some things to light because there's a place in my state called Fairfield. And if it was called Firefield, that would make sense as to some of the, the stories I've read about the, the Native Americans who used to live there. A, they would practice the slash and burn. They would burn down the whole forest every fall to make it extra fertile next year round after the winter had come and everything and water run through the, the, the burnt fresh soil. Now everything grows back twice as big in spring, you know, and when the colonists came, they put an end to all of that. And now you have park rangers who go and they're supposed to maintain the various wild spaces. But if you go on a hike and you see how much debris there is in the, in the forest, it's like, uh, maybe, it, maybe it does speed things up, speeds back up the process, the recycling process to set it on fire. But that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's so much stuff like that around, around here. 
you know i mean you just look you like literally look like up at like any of these buildings and just like the facades they got this it's just this hermetic symbolism is just all over the place here you know it's yeah you kind of can't unsee it once you know what you're looking for yeah you know? One that really stands out, and I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on this one, it's the, the statue. I think it's right there in front of the art museum that you drive around. It, there's like a rotundra drive. You can circle around it, and it's got like a lion, and it's being killed by a god. Are you familiar with this statue? Yeah, no, I, I looked into that. I can't remember, though. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um. I, f- I forget what that one is. I, I know exactly where it is and I know what you're talking and what right. you're talking about. There's a bunch of interesting ones, like, are, especially at the art museum. There's one behind it too that's like sort of like these Nephilim watcher, like, mm. like a duo statue behind the museum, I think it is. I think right. Ross Ben, I heard Ross Ben talking about that one. So, yeah, there's, I mean, it's, it's all over the place here. You really, you can't get away from it. it. Another interesting, really interesting place here is like, there's like this Laurel Hill Cemetery, which is right along that line of like the Schuylkill River. Like if you keep going um, west past the art museum, like you drive this road, you'll get to this, this cemetery. And I went there to one day and it's like, there's more Egyptian stuff there than I've ever seen anywhere. Like all all the graves have obelisks on them. I'm just, there's like hundreds of obelisks there. You know what I mean? And then you yeah. start looking at the names of like who, who these people are and it's like, you know, like the oldest, some of these oldest families that are like in, that live in this city. Like, so, I mean, I think these people were just kind of like steeped in this kind of symbolism and, and ideas of these just like ancient times. I think we're just, I think we're living in it now still, you know, that, but it's, it's much less notable, no, noticeable to uh, most people. Right. Now, given that all this symbology is very clear and present in the city, have you ever wondered or, or, pondered like what it's there for other than to just kind of recreate like you said there obviously with a lot of the architecture they're 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 playing into a certain style but with the statue you mentioned how they're placed in certain power places is there anything else to this is it a form of magic i, I met ross ben and, and that was kind of his theory i don't want to just rehash his thing it's like it's an urban act of magic, but as somebody who's there and experiences it, what are your thoughts on, on the placement of the artwork? I mean, I, I would probably agree with him. It's like, it's a way to um, assume ownership over like these sacred sites by the people who are in, who are in charge or who want to be in charge, you know? So you, you throw your, you throw your Greek temple over this native site basically to show that like, Hey, we're, this is our culture. That's calling the shots here now. Right. And everybody's going to see that. Yeah. And if they don't know what, you know, the symbols are or what these certain statues mean, or even if that it's a Greek temple, somebody's like, Oh, well this giant building is here, you know? So somebody had to put that there. So. Indeed. So I'm wondering, you, you mentioned, traveled have any other places stood out like philadelphia does are there any places you've been to that maybe had more magic because that's something that i've been really fascinated with this year is like the the magic of place and it was really easy last year when nobody was on the road like i i traveled down to dc i checked out the obelisk there there's nobody on the the national green it was perfect and then i drove up along the susquehanna and you mentioned Ross Ben, so I'm sure you're familiar with Michael Wan and Ross and all their work. And and it's it's super interesting to like 
find out that all of this stuff is in your own backyard. That to me has been a really, it's been resounded multiple times through me and other people, but has, has any other place you visited contained as much energy as Philadelphia does? Cause I really, I don't know if I could say any place has that I've been to. Uh, I would say, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've, been to quite a few places i think like you said like the power of place is really interesting and like different kind of places give you different vibes about stuff you know i think philly for like a, a big city has a lot of that but i i mostly like like getting out really living in cities most of my life try to get out in like nature as much as possible now i love new mexico i think it's like there's something magical about the desert and like just being out there and like you don't get these like vast open vistas on the east coast as you do out west especially like in that area when there's just there's so much weird stuff with like the military and roswell and all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on around there but there's there's got to be something to that i think too yeah this my one particular place like taos new mexico just it's magical you know what i mean i go there and it's like you just get this vibe that's like oh okay this is this is where you're supposed to be or something you know yeah um, yeah. And you know what? Looking at your artwork, I was almost a little like surprised that you didn't live somewhere like that because it is kind of, I don't want to say it's a theme, but at least in the prints that you sent me, it's a, a desert setting and it brings to mind this like ancient culture that Corey Daniels and I were talking about on a previous episode and like the whole, the mysticism of that ancient place that is the desert and, and how Corey put it that the desert, there's really no other place for society to flourish like a desert because it puts people in a certain way of life that forces them to sort of live for the, the good of all rather than just for themselves. And then like cultures up north have that same thing going, but it ends up. Sorry. No, it's it, I was almost finished in the sense that like they have the same thing, but it's more of a hierarchy. Someone has to tell people what to do in the colder climates, whereas the desert, it's more of like a, we're all in this together. Go ahead. I was recently talking to somebody about that same kind of idea where like, I think that like in maybe like northern climates or climates that are more harsh, like you have to have more cooperation because maybe there's less people. Maybe you have a long trip somewhere and it's like, you could die out in those elements, you know, there's less people. So it's like, I think it forces people to kind of cooperate more. Whereas in like a society that has like abundant agriculture to feed everyone, you're going to, you're going to kind of get this mindset of like kind of separation between people of haves and have nots and everybody just kind of in this like rat race. You know what I mean? I get, I get a lot of that, like feel like in the city. Yeah. You know? Well, it's interesting how our modern world kind of has imposed that way of life on everybody because it is like we're living in a, a virtual field of abundance with our network of, of trade as far reaching as it is. You could be working from home in the DR, like in this today's climate, a lot of people in America who have jobs like that, they pieced out. They went to third world countries where they don't have to pay as many taxes yeah. and they could do the same thing they're doing. Yeah, yeah. I get it. It's... It's weird, man. Duh. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's. I, I try to do that. I spend a lot of time by myself, and then it's like I need, to, I need to socialize. You need to like get out and meet other human beings at at a certain point as well. I think that's part of the experience. We can shut our, ourselves like and make our own little world for ourselves, but at the end of the day, you got to interact with other people and their oh. opinions. 
I'm sure you're you're familiar with this all too well as an artist. Artists, I think, tend to just have communities in a way like they gather around what they do. And I'm finding that with the podcast community and I'm meeting so many different people, but it's on this like reaction level to like the pandemic world that we're in where, oh, people are more comfortable meeting over Zoom now than they are in person. Not that I you know, could have afforded to fly guests out to my lovely basement here in Connecticut, but it's like, it's, it's definitely, yeah, it comes with its kind of catch 22. It's like, we are socializing, but at the same time, there's like a odd prerequisite that wasn't met that you do meet when you naturally kind of like click with somebody in person, you know what I mean? Like just through the synchronicity of, of place and that's why I wanted to highlight like our interaction at the beginning, because I feel like there is that component sometimes with social media for synchronicity to kind of like line things up in the right way. Cause I wouldn't have this podcast if it wasn't for Tripoli, just like being who he is. And then I went and saw him on a, at a, a live show. One thing led to another now working for him on his podcast. This made all this possible. I'm wondering, bringing it back to your story, were there any synchronicities that led to you becoming a, an artist, doing tattoo work, all of these things? What what kind of kicked that off for you? Man, it's something I think I always kind of wanted to do. I always drew my whole life. But I just never knew kind of how to like make it a living. It didn't seem feasible until I kind of found, started getting tattooed. And then I was like, oh, okay, like this is this is cool. Doesn't seem like real, like a real job. Although that's, that's a lie. And it's quite a lot of work. Yeah. I just, I think I've just been drawn to imagery my whole life. And I've, I've had those kinds of experiences where you're just like, you're at the right time at the right place and you meet the right people. And it sparks off this chain of events of like ideas. And it's kind of how like, I follow like my own work. People kind of ask me like what a lot of the stuff is, is about sometimes. And it's usually just like whatever I'm interested at the moment that I keep I just, I'll start researching one thing and that'll lead me to this other thing. And that'll take me to this other place, you know? And a lot of it just has to do with like history. Like you were talking about, I'm really interested in like this prehistoric kind of society and how people, how we got to where we are today. Like the kind of the, like how ideas and beliefs kind of get passed down through people and migrations and art. And when you start looking at like ancient art, it seems like people a long, long time ago before we had writing had a lot of connections with each other either synchronistically or they were trading or something because like you find these same symbols popping up in all these different places, you know, which you can, you can kind of trade, like trace the material culture to trade. But then when you have stories that, that show up across the globe, that seemingly with cultures that have no, are supposed to have no relation with each other. It's like, how did, how is this story so specifically the same as this other story? You know, that universal syncretic aspect to, to the spirit, really, it's the spirit expressing itself through different people. But yeah, that's that's fascinating. Is there any particular ancient culture that you're you were most drawn to at first? Because obviously you're, you're seeing the similarities in all. But what, where did this kick off? Like which culture? Because ancient art, I mean, where do we even begin with that? I, w- I hope you. Yeah. Uh, do you have any visuals you can show us? Any pictures? Uh, I mean, uh, let's see. Uh... I mean, I just have like a ton of like, most of like my books are like archaeology books or like mm. stuff like 
just people digging up like old sites. And I'm kind of like, I, a lot, I used to do like a lot of just like, I would copy like stuff out of these books, like just repaint ancient pottery and stuff like that. I was really drawn to like Greece, Mesopotamia. It was basically the early Mediterranean was really interesting to me. Cause for me, it, it seems like that region was kind of like the early internet where you had like these, all these different ideas kind of like coalescing together with people moving around a lot, you know, but, but then like getting into that, I was looking like, well, some of these ideas must be even older than that, you know? And I started studying a lot of like prehistoric European culture, which there's no writing. So it's like, you kind of, it's a little bit of his, his guesswork. There's a really great archeologist. Her name was Maria Gambudis. She wrote a couple books called um, language of the goddess and where's the other one? The Civilization of the Goddess. Here, I can, just, I can show you some of this stuff. This book is really great. So this book right here, Civilization of the Goddess by Maria Gambudis. So she was kind of interested in this, this old European culture, which was pre-Indo-European, which that is like this, this group of people. There's all this debate about where they come from. Most likely they came around like the Caspian like step between like Europe, Asia, and like around like the Ukraine, like around there, like the steppe region, they domesticated the horse probably. And these people kind of spread out um, all over. And the reason they kind of can trace this is because we have like uh, similar languages. It's called Indo-European languages that basically right. go from India all the way to like Europe, like, right. like Great Britain and stuff. You know what I mean? And then you start to see like that is kind of the origins of a lot of like the patriarchal. Well, there's a lot of debate around that as well, but kind of you start seeing a lot of this like sky god worship become dominant after these people kind of spread out everywhere. And it's also like their their myths seem to be the ones that kind of get passed and become eventually like Gilgamesh, Hercules, the Bhagavad Gita, Mahabharata stuff in India. Like there's so many correlations between certain certain parts of all those stories that seem to be from something older. Right. Um, so yeah, just studying the, like stuff like that. And then I can try to go back even older. I'm like a bit, I'm a big fan of like Randall Carlson, Graham Hancock and stuff. I actually was lucky enough to meet Randall this year. We went out to Washington with the dudes from Garden America. Right on. Yeah. They've been on the show once or twice. Yeah. I'm friends with cool. them. Yeah. So I got to meet those guys, the brothers of serpent guys and then right Randall. On. And then we were all like driving around Washington with this group of people. And we were kind of like, seeing these like ancient like flood sites in uh, yeah okay contact at the canyon was it yeah contact, the bad yeah. land and the scablands scablands yep. yeah 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 i'm uh yeah. i'm a patron of or not a patron anymore but they they put a lot of that out on their plus membership and and yeah it was very cool stuff i was kind of there in spirit but yeah it, it was amazing and it was awesome part was just all the all the great people that you got to meet they were just like interested in in a lot of this like ancient stuff who are, who are really well versed in it as well you know yeah. and just kind of this exchange of ideas without being like oh this is silly or you're nuts or you know what i mean and and you had a wide variety of the people there like definitely like some old some older folks some military people david matheson there he's a friend yeah, of the show he wasn't he wasn't at at that one he was at the one earlier in the year very um, cool I love David's stuff too. His, his work is super influential for me, um, especially with like studying like constellations and myth and story and how that kind of all relates uh, together. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I can imagine his books, by the way, for those who aren't aware, are fantastic with visuals. Like he shows you where the constellations line up. I have a couple myself. And yeah, there you go. He's, yeah, it's it's great. It's it's like he shows all the star maps and like how they correlate, you know. Um, yeah. And a lot of the stuff like scholars like some scholars don't want to touch it, but a lot of some of the stuff that I read like from like regular academic people seem to take this take what he's saying almost for granted. Um, yeah. I think it's just not that widely known or accepted or they just think like astrology is is silly for for like between girls or something, you know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is a shame to see that like level of detailed research get put off to like the fringes. And I feel like the Grimerica show has a lot of guests on who who fit that alternative history lens that they, they're definitely not taken seriously for whatever reason. I, I tend to think it's because there's an active suppression, whether it's through the National Geographic Society, through the Smithsonian, whichever group you want to pin it on. There seems to be some sort of active suppression of like this alternative history. I mean, I've heard theories that the, the proto-Indus European people came from the the cataclysm the flood they they were sailing yeah. around and and obviously Randall's work shows us that it there is evidence that the the ocean has risen a significant level of of distance so and considering how prolifically humans populate on coasts it would make sense that most of those cultures were left with destroyed lands and probably only the few that were lucky enough to be sailing around on their boats at the moment when the deluge happened survived. So yeah, that's, it, it's interesting because like you mentioned, these people inspired some of our early spiritual cultures. It's interesting how as times go, time has passed further and further into, you know, what we call now the most progressive where that we're advanced scientifically. It seems like we're the least advanced when it comes to the, the spiritual side of things. It's like we've devolved out of spirituality into this sort of material consciousness. I, I think that's probably by design as well, though, that mm. especially that, that last part, like the suppression of history stuff. I, I think Somewhat, yeah, but I think I think there's just so many different interpretations of history that you know they want a story. It's like so it's this like Western like story that they're kind of going with. But a lot of like archaeologists now they're open to like Hancock and some stuff like that's ideas because they keep just finding stuff that's older and older. And it's like you can't kind of deny some of this stuff anymore. And it's just like those people are gonna argue with their people like everybody else, and they're all gonna argue with each other, and they kind of gotta go with whatever the story is that the professors are teaching them because they're like well what about this they don't want it they, they need they need jobs they need to progress like in their field as well so they kind of stick with like the story they've been given you know right, right. Um, yeah this like the the part about us i think our our society is is for sure especially in the last hundred years has been made to be like this materialistic secular like the spirit doesn't exist. All that is crazy. We're human robot. We're just human robots, like walking around. Like, and I, I think that's by design to make us forget that there is something more than just like the shit that we're buying constantly. Right. You know? Well, and you see it in, in art history. Some of the most prized works of art are 
spiritual in nature there showing you the essence of the soul i mean you you know it all too well you've looked through this body of artwork i'm sure but there's so much work in the renaissance period where they're they're hinting at the soul they're they're showing you different scenes from the the other worlds and it's not meant to be literally interpreted as like a painting of a place in earth it's they're they're depicting the heavens or they're depicting a god and and now you look at like the modern art that's prized in like the galas and whatnot and it's all this abstract stuff it looks like it could be made on a computer it's very technologically influenced i don't i don't know what are your thoughts on on where art is now yeah i go i go back and forth with that as well because i i do a couple things digitally now, but I honestly, I, I, I hate working digitally. I like making everything by hand. I think you lose some of that soul that you have by giving up some of your autonomy to a machine to do stuff for you. And you just don't know, you're like, you know, what if all these machines shut down? Nobody's going to know how to, how to do anything, you know? I mean, I see, I see it a lot with like younger, younger tattooers nowadays because they can just buy an iPad. All the images are available out there. You can just trace anything you want on Instagram. And you're like the next, next hotshot, like, dude. And it's like, none of these, not none of them, because there's, there's so many talented people. I'm not going to say that, but, but, but there's a lot of people who just like, it, it doesn't require really any effort anymore, you know, and people doing their homework and stuff like that. When sitting there for 10 hours and, and drawing by yourself, I think a lot of that is lost. I mean, look at like the ancient art. These people were just like masters at their craft, you know, and that's just, a lot of that I feel like is, is kind of lost nowadays, especially like look at like just like our material culture, like the shit that you buy, like it's everything's disposable, you know what I mean? Nothing lasts for like more than a year. I buy something at a thrift store from 50 years ago and it's like better quality held up than like something I buy that's brand new nowadays, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I've seen those theories with the art world in the sense that like if you look at some of these Renaissance paintings, they're done with like a level of detail that almost seems machine like, 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 and we wouldn't be able to reproduce it today with a machine. It's just like the, the, and this is kind of from one of these Tartarian videos, funny enough to bring up the Tartaria zeitgeist of theories. But I, I saw a Tartarian video, if we want to use that term to describe it as that. And they were like, oh, uh, look at how detailed this is. They couldn't have done this with by hand. It must have been done by some amazing Tartarian machine. And and I, I'm just sitting there wondering, like, well, could it be that people just spend less time gaining a skill like that? That probably took somebody forty or fifty, sixty years in some palace somewhere. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You had generations of those craftsmen like doing that, you know what I mean? And that's what you learned from when you were a small kid and all you did was carve stone all day. You're going to be really, really, really good at it. Like, especially if you're learning from masters who learn from masters, like that's what alchemists used to do. I mean, that's how like, like look at like people in Japan, that's how they make art. Like that's how all their culture, like it's, it's generational. And the father will learn something for 70 years and teach it to their son. And then he's got all the skills that his dad gave him. And like, and then he's going to like build on top of that for another 70 years. And it's like, that's why everything over there is beautiful, you know, cause they still, they actually give a crap about that. Yeah. Um, everything I feel like is just disposable because we can just, I can just make up a, a paintbrush on Photoshop or illustrator or whatever. And just like plop this image there without really 
understanding like how to draw it or how it really works or something. Oh. Yeah. Wow. You had a nerve there with the dad thing. I mean, the show, my family thinks I'm crazy. It's all too true. And and if I, if I lived in my dad's footsteps, I might be landscaping and working for a water company. So it's like, I, I feel that like, I, I don't want to do something like that. I want to use my mind. I want to use the, the, faculties that are inherent to who I am and, and not be like a blue collar worker. But I feel like there is that certain innate sense being a man to learn something from your father in that way. And I, I think it's beautiful and fascinating that Japan does that, but I'm also kind of like jealous in a jaded kind of way that we don't do that here in America. Like, because if it was that way, maybe I would, I would a have a better uh, <laughs> relationship with my dad, with my pops, but also be like, I think that's why we have such benign kind of mundane work to do for the most part. I mean, unless you go out of your way and, and learn something and, and gain a skill, obviously you're someone who has a skill and it's inherent to like who you are. Like you said, you always love drawing. You've always been drawn to imagery. So that's something that I would see you inspiring your kids to possibly do. But that brings me to my question, which is, do you think that something like art can just be passed down? Or do you think it's more of like a you know, certain people get imbued with that quality to become that way? I, I think it's probably a little bit of both because I mean, with any craft, I think you can, it can probably be taught, but to have like an eye for what is for what is interesting or ideas that are interesting or like try to go in a way that people haven't done something before. I think that is probably more inherent, maybe an individual, you know, it's like I said, it's like nowadays with like the computers and technology, there's, you can almost teach anybody to do, to tattoo or how to like paint something, you know what I mean? Cause it's just the, the imagery is all out there at your fingertips. So anybody, if you spend a year or two, just like lock somewhere and you could probably figure out how to do, how to do something. But it doesn't mean that you understand what you're doing at the same time, you know, and you don't have that like body of knowledge of like where this stuff came from and why it, it should be done this certain way or why you can break those rules once you, you learn them, you know, cause you're just, and sometimes it's, it's cool cause you get people who are, who, who don't have that foundation and are making really interesting stuff because I think they just have are inherently talented. But then you could have people that are great craftsmen who've been doing the same thing for 20, 30 years who can technically make something that's perfect, but it maybe has no life to it. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I wonder though, on the, on the spot of tattooing as an art form. I've heard certain authors like Peter Jenks go into the like the mystical culture of tattoos in Thailand and how they use certain tattoos as spells. And that's very much a part of like Japanese culture as well. Maybe not on the side of spells, but there is a spiritual nature to tattooing. Do you, do you find that here in the West? And do you try to draw that in? I don't know if I'm familiar with his work, but I, I definitely think there's some sort of, I mean, it's very, it's very ritual and primal based. I think it's one of the oldest art forms, probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest, I'm sure people have been marking themselves for 
hundreds of thousands of years, if I would guess. They've got mummies thousands of years old that have tattoos all over them. In the West, I think it's more like everything else with us. It's more like material culture, especially now. I feel like a lot of people, it's just like buying a pair of shoes or something. I'm I'm very fortunate that like a lot of the people that are coming to me to get tattooed kind of know the work that I do. So I feel like I have like more of a connection with with that side of it because I do do a lot of these like spiritual themes but at the same time it's like I'm like this is my job I, I'm kind of doing whatever certain times just do whatever somebody wants because I got to pay my bills you know and right. but I but I do think at the same time it is a transformative experience and tattooing is like just one of those like it's almost like shamanistic too I mean it's like a form of like exposure or whatever people can go in some really real places when they're you know sitting and getting like hurt in a really hard place for a couple hours like a rite of passage yeah yeah i think think for for us like i mean i think in our society it almost is one of those now like almost everybody is tattooed now it's so acceptable and before i think it was we were talking about sacred societies earlier and i think it was kind of a marker kind of for that a little like almost 50 60 70 years ago it was more like people in the military carnies like it was less than now it's just socially accepted it's like another form of i guess that's like our like i said like our rite of passage you're 18 and you go in with your friends and you all get tattooed and sometimes you don't even know like what the thing is you're getting or whatever i wish i could take back all the tattoos i got when i was 18 because they're all terrible my ideas were awful you know what i mean but but something drew me to that and i just and i just wanted it and now and that's what i like made my life out of so it brought me into all this stuff too so it's it's for me like tattooing is like totally a part of my journey it's it literally gave me everything i have like you know i can take care of my kids with it by the skill that i can basically go anywhere in the world now and use and it opened me up to like all this this imagery that before that i didn't really i just oh this looks cool this looks cool but like just for doing it for long enough i'm like oh what does this stuff mean mm. you know and yeah. uh yeah, it kind of brought me to that place for better or worse, I guess. <laughs> yeah, man. Now, take me to a couple of those like bigger meanings, if, if you will. Like, like you, you were drawn to these symbols. What were some fairly memorable like revelations that you had if you could go that far back? Because I'm sure it wasn't that recently. I mean, what a lot of it was when I just started, I was studying this ancient stuff and kind of making making art about it for people to get tattooed and then i just you know i was noticing like these similar like you, know, you notice like this like a sun right or like another thing that i would notice a lot was like like a figure holding two like something in, in each hand you know and i and i noticed it in like cultures that i'm like they just don't have anything to do with each other how would how, why would, how would this be so specific that they're both a lot of times in like the like the middle eastern cultures it's called it's, they're usually holding two animals and it's like, it's called the master of animals, right? But they have like, there's a similar um, picture in South America, you know, and I think Tiwanaku in, in Peru, I can't remember um, exactly where, but I think there's like another one in like a Mayan culture somewhere that I've saw. And I'm like, okay. And then like, that kind of drove me to like, well, how, how do these people specifically have this same image with these two holding, with this something holding two things, right? In each hand in front of you. And uh, after and then studying Matt, like finding out about Dave Matheson, I learned about the constellation Ophiuchus, which is basically that a lot of that is that that's what the depiction of Ophiuchus is. It's somebody holding a serpent, and that's 
that's one of the oldest ones that I found is this, this Minoan statue of a woman holding two snakes. And then how we're, remember we were talking earlier about how we reappropriate symbols of power now. Well, people were doing it thousands of years ago as well, because so that, that was a Minoan image, right? And it was a woman. And then you have all these, you have all these myths in Greece and in Mesopotamia about like this, this warrior God kind of conquering, defeating this monster or whatever. And a lot of times it's, it's a woman. And it seems like that is like a signaling of, of this, like, Indo, this Indo-Europeans basically taking over this like older culture and they would appropriate the symbols and then use it for themselves and be like, oh, now it's a man holding, holding animals, you know? Mm. Um, right. You see this theme often. I'm wondering something that Michael Wan taught me that's really strange is there is this guy named Talakiel who came up to Philadelphia and there are these petroglyphs in the Susquehanna River Valley. I think they're on the Conestoga River. And he basically, they brought him to this site. It's called like uh, Big Indian Rock. And it's, it's in the Conestoga River. You, got, you can only see it by a canoe. And this man, Talakiel, who was a very famous shaman in South America, he recognized two or one of the petroglyphs on this stone as like a man with huge hands. And he said that this symbol is a symbol that we have in our tribe as well. And it means this, and forgive me, I don't remember exactly everything he said. I'm impressed that I remembered how to say his name, Talakiel. But, But yeah, that just blew me away, like thinking, wow, okay, people in the East Coast of the U.S., specifically Pennsylvania, not too far from where I'm from. I live in Connecticut, you're down there. And these tribes that were here 500, 600 years ago before colonists started popping off, they were connected all the way down to the Amazon. And that just, you know, gives even more credence to your your theory. Another thing more New England specific is the connection between the Irish culture and the, the Vikings and this whole really far north east part of the U.S. and Canada. This uh, tribe, the, the Mi'kmaq tribe, apparently they had symbols that looked like runes and they had sort of sites that were maybe even shared between the Vikings and this tribe where they would have traded a uh, long time ago when Vikings uh, <laughs> were conquering the land all over the world. They weren't just stopping at the Atlantic Ocean. They had spots in the and, and we kind of touched on this earlier. For the longest time, archaeologists in Europe, they didn't acknowledge the fact that Vikings traveled to the new land. And recently they've come out and said like, oh, yeah, this is pretty damn near evidence that they at least made it to Nova Scotia or they at least made it to Newfoundland. They won't admit that they made it this far south. But why would they? You know what I mean? I I, I think I saw that in like National Geographic or something now. So it's like it's becoming more mainstream, you know, and like. I mean, it's, it's almost inevitable. We think of like the world and like our borders that we have today, like those have always existed. It's like, no, they probably haven't. You know what I mean? And like somebody's always trading and there's always people that want to explore. And a lot of it is probably financial as well because you're looking for like raw materials to trade and that you need at home as well. And you have some sort of whatever currency they're using is basically raw material at that point, you know? Yeah. And that's, 
that's like i was just listening to something about the island of cyprus which is like this island basically in the middle of the mediterranean kind of like it's like a 30 minute flight to like israel or like beirut from there so i mean you could probably sail there in a day from from there and there was a huge site of like bronze metallurgy in like the bronze age and like everybody from like like that whole region would like go there to trade and it would seem like this like melting pot of all these different cultures was going on on that island and no and there's all these different theories on like who who they were and where they came from blah blah, blah you know but it's it's interesting that like a lot of like that those old gods too are linked to like metal metallurgy you mm. know like, like turning metal into weapons or or some sort of other good you know and like that was kind of linked to to the gods you know? yeah well have you ever heard of uh meteoric iron before yes i have yeah they found some in king tut's tomb and actually okay so listen i was just listening to this woman she's a greek archaeologist so she's talking about cyprus so one of so cyprus is where in the greek myths aphrodite comes from all right so there's temples to venus and aphrodite all around cyprus and they've even thought that they used to worship a black rock that was in one of these temples so it sounds like it's a meteor you know and that was going on all over the place in the ancient near east i think there was even a roman emperor who tried to like start a meteor cult and i think they killed his his ass because i don't think the romans were playing around with right. that but, uh, well well yeah and you consider that this stuff falls from the sky people look up right it comes from the gods and then they can fashion it into weapons it's like well, no wonder why iron became the god of war associated yeah. with him, because they're turning these daggers out of out of these like sheets of iron that fall from the sky. I was hearing it from one researcher that it's actually something going on in the electro universe model where pl- a plasma field interacts with our Earth somehow and, and and Mars is a part of it. And that causes these storms in our atmosphere that uh, manifest as like iron falling from the sky and like all of these she- like like spears of iron falling like literal like rods of iron the way it's formed through the alchemy of the forces in the atmosphere it hits the ground like a like a rod of iron and if you put that like with all these stories of like king arthur and the sword that like landed in stone and he had to free it from the stone i mean that it just it's just so amazing the parallels that you can find when you really dig through that came up through a podcast i do where we dig through the periodic table of elements just to find little things like that we hit iron as the topic of the episode that day and and that's what i found interesting oh that's really cool yeah i mean there's something going on with meteors it's like it's like mad they're like magic weapons basically right it's like how you get a magic sword you get this rock from the god and then turn it into a sword it's like you're going to be the most badass warlord that you got over there you know what i mean yeah and now we're taking alien technology from crashed airplane ufos and and repurposing that i mean geez you mentioned the the military stuff going on in new mexico I know you're you're probably aware of of all that to some degree. Yeah, do you have you read that book American Cosmic by Diana Walsh Sulkin? Oh man, I've heard I've heard a lot about it. It's funny cuz I actually these cards you sent me I sent one of them to my buddy Ryan. He warned me about that whole crew, Diana and uh Tom and all of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're trying, they're trying to spread this like 
that's what's so weird about this to me. I think they're trying to create like this new like religion almost, you mm. know, and they're putting it through like this Catholic lens, like, Oh, well the Catholics, you know, we're the cat, we're part of the Catholic church, but we believe in this and it's all cool. And like the space brothers are great, you know? And like, yeah. and that, it's weird because they basically like, she's like, she can't talk about certain things, but she kind of makes it known in the book that, that they have like this alien technology that they found in the desert. I'm like, if it's like, how much can, am I going to believe that? Or how much is this you trying to sell your version of like, what's what's going to happen you know yeah um, well and and given that the pope came out well, how many years ago and acknowledged the the that their aliens might be real when ancient aliens is like broadcasted 24 7 on history channel like yeah, on certain I, days of the week it's like come yeah, on now it's definitely seeding something into like the general consciousness that they that somebody wants people to accept you know and i think it's like once enough people accept it then i just be like oh see we told you we've been telling you it's like you kind of need to like i read this really interesting thing this book it was called the changing images of man and it was written by these guys funny enough a lot of the guys who started sri but that is like stanford research the people who did like all the remote viewing stuff and all that they wrote this book about like how a society might collapse they ran these like future predictions, which they don't tell you how they did, which makes it seem like they were like using like remote viewing or astral travel or doing LSD or whatever and like seeing the future. And they're like the certain predictions of like a future that was beneficial for these people that were in power at the time. And there's a bunch of scenarios where it's not. And the, the way to like get everybody on the same page with the future that they want is kind of start seeding this, a lot of this stuff in like fringe culture basically, you know, so like comic books, maybe like underground music, you know, and because you can't have like military people come out and be like, well, there's aliens. We had contacted with them in the past. We're still contacting them now. It's like, look at like when Tom DeLonge came out, nobody believed him because (laughs) uh, nobody would trust the guy because you know what I mean? He's like, look who the people around him, you know, but you at the same time, you need like, you kind of need true believers kind of spreading this, this ideology by themselves. And that's going to get kind of people like hooked into it. But then it, it kind of freaks me out because then you see like like Heaven's Gate and like these UFO cults and stuff. You know what I mean? Like mm. the Mormons are all into the UFO stuff. Like, yeah, it's just, it's weird. One of the things that they were talking about in that paper too is that like we need to get everybody on kind of on the same page with this. And like Freemasonry work does a great way to get people on board, with, like get a bunch of different people on like on the same page in the past. So let's try to do something like that. Okay, you know. Yeah. And I don't, don't mean to bring it back to the Freemasons. I don't think that there's like some grand Freemasonic conspiracy, but I think it's, I think different groups know the power of symbols and imagery and ideas, and they're kind of just recycle a lot of these ideas and put a modern lens on it. I think most, I think a lot of sci fi that we have is just, it's just a cult. Like it's, it's just all the cult ideas repackaged with modern technology. It's our modern myths, you know. Yeah, no, that's that's I think that's even Diana's angle on it is like we're re, we're restructuring the myth, our world myth. And it was either her or some other academic who was talking about it in a way that seemed like everybody who was reading it from her context would have seen it like, oh, yeah, this is how we're going to recreate the culture, the culture being maybe this new world order lens. But somebody who goes and looks at this stuff and sees the artwork and how much of it actually rings of UFOs. I mean, we do see the one or two paintings from the, I think it's like the 
the middle ages or the renaissance period where you see like ufos in the sky and they're just kind of like slight saucers in the sky could be clouds honestly but you see ancient aliens the tv show they're like look look evidence of of ufos in in this biblical work and i'm wondering somebody who has examined it how much of it actually think like does it it doesn't feel alien does it what what are your thoughts no i think i think it's like the jock valet model of like this is like more of like interdimensional kind of stuff that people have been interacting with since forever probably right. there's like whatever like level of technology that we're at it kind of assumes you know that that form to bring people slightly ahead of maybe of where they are I, it's there's all different names for it it's like you can de- if you're in like pagan times or like antiquity like in the greeks like socrates said he had a demon that told him everything that he did you know what i mean and like so then that gets turned into like angels and and demons during like christian times you know and like our modern lens is is ufos but everybody you can kind of see it in the art of like people everywhere they're they're doing some sort of like rituals where they seem like they're communicating with something that's above themselves there's a lot of like art with like I'm thinking like Maya art specifically right now for some reason, because they're like, they're doing either like a bloodletting ritual or burning incense or something. And then there's like this God kind of manifesting like above their head. You'll see some, or you'll see stuff with like stuff with multiple heads. And I think that's where like a lot of like the masks in ancient culture come from as well. It's like donning this thing to become something like be part of something like outside of yourself. I think these techniques are, have been known for forever you know, and I think like now for the last hundred years, we kind of like are saying, oh, all this shit doesn't exist. It's all in your, it's all in your head. And it's like, well, people for thousands of years thought it existed. And even if it doesn't exist, or even if it's just all in your head, well, that's like, that's even more interesting. You know what I mean? How can you create this like way where you think like you're speaking to something outside of yourself in your own head? You know what I mean? Like, that's just as interesting to me, you know? Right. I, that's what's always drawn me to it. Cause being kind of a natural skeptic just wanting to like see the 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 truth when you look into certain things like with a really honest lens you realize that oh okay this can't be explained by that kind of uh, bs rubric they gave me in school i need to reevaluate and and then you start to see like exactly as you put it there's some kind of inner dimensional otherworldly interaction and it's very ritualized there are certain practices and methods that you can see incense is a big one i mean i had chris bennett on the show who talks about cannabis and its history as a sort of occult and spiritual tool and it's funny how the bible after its many mistranslations they actually took cannabis to be calamus, which is a totally different plant, has probably zero psychoactive potential. But it was pretty obvious based on his research and other researchers who he included in his bibliography that cannabis was a big part of a lot of these incense ingredients, even in the Abrahamic religions in those days. Merkaba. Merkaba really this is like one of the techniques in um the abrahamic stuff where it's like yeah you go in a tent you burn all this shit dude i have i have like ritual magic like books like from probably the middle ages like 15 1600s and like you look at these recipes of what these people are supposed to do to some of these certain gods and some of them are like burn 
four pounds of opium and three pounds of cannabis with all this other stuff in like a secluded space and breathe, breathe all that in. It's like, yeah, <laughs> breathe all that shit in. Like you're definitely going to start seeing something, you know what I mean? Like, wow. yeah. Um, and it's like, but it's, it's very specific on like, because it's like, that's a lot of that stuff is like this hermetic tradition. So it's like every day of the week is a certain God. So you do this on like a certain hour of a certain day to reach that God that you want. You burn the certain plants that are associated with that God. And then you say these certain chants, you know what I mean? And it's like, it seems like this, that's, it seems like a technology almost, you know, that right. a lot of people were aware of that we we're saying there's just different lenses on it. There's like the jinn in like the Muslim tradition, you know, mm-hmm. but even like what you're talking about, like burning, like the, like the, like cannabis too. It's like Herodotus talked about that with the Scythians doing that. If you read Herodotus, it goes, yeah, the Scythians smoked cannabis. They, they went in these tents and they, this stuff, they burned cannabis and they made them howl or something. And then like you start seeing ancient art, it's like, there's all these like bronze tripod things. A lot of them were at temples. So they're just probably burning this shit at like temples all day. Just like breathing in opium, weed, whatever. Like right. I think, and I think a lot of the times too, like, so if they, if they take this stuff for granted, there's probably times where people, the veil is thinner, where you're being able to communicate with this stuff much, much easier. I think, who else goes into that? He's written a few books. I can't recall his name right now. But yeah, there's probably times where this was just like a given, you know? Yeah. Thomas Hatsis is coming to mind because I just got a book of his where he breaks down how these psychedelics, like you put it, are very evident in a lot of these grimoires. They just use different names for them, like Hensbane and and some other ones. One that I've actually tried is uh, Mugwort. I smoked it and I had this lucid dream like no other. But it was like one and done. Never could do it again. I tried smoking it multiple times after that, and I never had that same experience that I did the first time. And that's when I realized, like, oh, okay, these natural sort of plant medicines, you can't, they're not good. You don't, you don't want to abuse them like that. That gave me like a quick like look into it, and that was it. It was very much of a more like on the same level relationship where once these drugs get alchemized and you see it with cannabis again with the the dabs and whatnot it's crazy what kids are smoking through these little dab pens compared to like a blunt or a joint yeah no i I totally agree with you i'm kind of like freaked out by that myself as soon as like joe rogan started talking about dmt i'm just like oh man this is this something's wrong here people like kind of i I feel like it's mk ultra too chris knowles talks about that a lot i think it's like it's they're just rolling this stuff out to the general public and just let's just see what happens. You know what I mean? Like the whole, just the whole history of like where they like got LSD from is, is just sketchy in the first place. Like, I don't believe any of that Albert Hoffman bicycle ride stuff to save like, my life. I've talked to, I've talked to actual chemists about it and they're like, yeah, that story doesn't really make a lot of sense. And like the, a lot of those people who were like kind of in that orbit, they were all classicists. They were all studying like mystery schools. You know what I mean? Like they're very familiar with these methods of what these people were doing back in the day. And like, that's how they, so one of the theories of like where they got the idea for LSD is, is I think the guy Wasan, who was like a known CIA guy who, who like rediscovered magic mushrooms and put it in like the popular conscious again. He was wondering. Oh, Gordon, Gordon Wasson. Gordon, Gordon Wasson. Yeah. He was wondering if, if those Elsinian mystery schools, if they could like make some sort of fungal rye that would basically right. create these experiences. And I'm pretty sure that that, that stuff was probably a secret in some sort in certain circles of these secret societies that were probably doing it for hundreds of al- like these alchemists, of course, they probably knew how to make stuff like that. You know what I mean? And then just like, 
they came because all those early chemists too, they were alchemists. Some of those people were dabbling in both foots and both, you know, schools. Were well, like, and, and like you said, there wasn't a blurring of the lines. It was just a given and the science and spirituality had didn't have the strict line in between them. Like I was yeah. reading something about funny enough, the first governor of the colony of Connecticut, he was an alchemist. His name was John Winthrop Jr. And their whole idea was that God was inspiring them to find these metals in the ground and then use them for certain things and yeah. brings it back to that whole from the yeah. gods. We, we, we find this divine inspiration. Yeah. I mean, that, I think you're spot on hundred percent. And I think that's the belief system of a lot of these like people. I don't hate to say like they, it's like so obscure, but yeah, I think like the upper echelons and like higher levels of Freemasonry and these other secret societies and like multi-generational like families with wealth, like that's, that's their belief system. They know how to do this stuff and they've been doing it for a really long time. And they, they spent a lot of time convincing us that it's all bullshit because it's, it's basically technology that you can like, why, why do you want to tell everybody your secrets? You know what I mean? If it's benefiting you in some way, you know? Exactly. Yeah, no, it's like, uh, and, and, and then, and then they in, encode it in these books and throw it back in our face, like with the wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland, like these books that were meant for children have these kind of secrets encoded in them, yep. uh, almost as oh, if to man. like hint at it, but not, but it didn't work in the way of like enlightening. It kind of like gives people the idea that magic exists in fairy tales for kids, you know? And then you talk about magic with a bunch of adults and they're like, that's kid stuff, man. What are you talking about? Yeah, man, they, they're still doing signaling like that, dude. I'll, man, I'll tell you this one thing that I noticed recently from all this stuff. So I have, I have a five-year-old daughter. I've been reading her this book for since she was little. I got it when she was born. It's called Rosie Revere Engineer. It's like a series of these books, right? And I'm reading this book, and it's I've read this to her like a hundred times, you know? And I'm like, and it's it's this little girl who just, it's in rhyme, and it's 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 a nice little story. It's about a girl, and she like, she's interested in making stuff but it's weird because she starts making rockets okay and then there's like <laughs> she's there's like nasa symbolism and then there's like they throw in some pyramids in the background somewhere stuff that has nothing to do with the story at all basically she's just like a little girl and then it's just it has all this weird symbolism that if you knew about jpl and jack parsons and nasa and like egypt and like kind of what we're talking about like this stuff like all clicks together and then i'm like Rosie Revere. So then I look up, I look up Paul Revere and go Freemason right there. Again, it comes back to it, dude. So it's like, it's signaling to other people who are kind of aware of this stuff. And it's like, it, for, it, for, it's for popular consumption. And that's kind of how like religion has always kind of worked. I feel like the upper echelon society have like a different view of the same symbols. Like we get like a peasant basically version of it. Like give this to the peasants. And then if you're in the know, like, then these symbols take on a whole new meaning. And if you know what you're looking for, esoteric and exoteric. Right. Uh, <laughs> Took it right out of my, off my, the tip of my tongue. Yes, exactly. And, and that's something that I think is, is key to art itself. You notice that with artists who have that symbolism, their artwork stands the test of time. Like guys like who, oh, his name is so hard to remember. He, he, he's famous now for Her Hieronymus 
Bosch, is that it? Bosch, yeah. 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 And like those images are just like iconic now, the hellscape and then the paradise, but initiated. He was a secret society member for sure. Oh, and- they were probably definitely eating shrooms or something. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. You look at, you look at that triptych and it's, it's incredible. It's like, how, how did anyone conceive this like fantastical little world? And then given the time he was in too, it's just like, it's so unique, but yeah, I mean, tripping or just an initiate through this society that maybe even gets you to trip by getting initiated. I mean, there's definitely stories of that with the hashash- hashashins, the uh, assassins down in Syria, right? These guys who who would join a cult and then they'd get them high, wake them up in this like palace and tell them, if you ever want to come back here again, you'll do everything we tell you to do. I mean, those techniques have been known for for a long time. I feel like they just keep kind of re, repackaging the same stuff. Like, look at all these crazy killer like killers in the last hundred years or whatever. A lot of them are like connected to the military and in cults. Like, it's there's something to all this stuff where it's like it, that's what kind of like I don't know. That's why I think like the push for a lot of this stuff to mainstream it is is a little worrying to me. Mm. Like this like push to like let's do like like psychedelic therapy and stuff you know what i mean like i don't think like if you're looking at it through like a secular lens i don't think these people know what they're playing with you know what i mean and you can open some doors that maybe shouldn't be opened for some people you know wow yeah that brings to mind a lot of weird stuff man for sure i don't know I don't know what that means. I'm not going to move to Oregon. I'm not going to be a part of that, like legalized psychedelic culture anytime soon. But I definitely think that that's a microcosm, like an experiment going on right now. 100%. I think that's what I think it's exactly what it is. It's an experiment on the general population. It's just like, well, let's see what happens if we give them this stuff. Like, and that they're going to paint it through the lens of like, oh, they're helping people in therapy, which I'm sure they have. And like psychedelics, I know have, have helped people i know you know and there's yeah there's i mean there's a lot of history of of that as well like the mind expansion part of it gets you to see in different ways but it's also they're also really good tools for brainwashing as well you know Um, well and that's that's what my fear is is that they're workshopping right now with these sorts of legal situations because in the past, they realized when they gave everybody free reign to use them as they pleased through these like music shows and festivals, it ended up like people left and started their own communities and had all these insights and revelations. The age of the, yeah, that's that's why the hippies got demonized with exactly what you put the the serial killers and that whole weird connection to the military. There's that same connection to a lot of those artists in the 27 club. And and they were a big part of that push to, to regular or normalize the use of psychedelics, which I'm not a stranger to. I've participated in, in those substances, but at the same time, there was a level of, of awareness that I took going into it that I, I, I hope that everybody has, and I'm afraid that might, it might not be as normal as I, I hope it, seems like there's a lot of potential things that could go wrong. Even in my life through taking those things, I saw where things could have went wrong. And I'm just afraid that maybe there's people out there who don't have that same level of judgment. 
Yeah, or think about just the complete sociopath who gets their hands on those drugs. That's that's worrying to me because it's like it's billed as this like mind expansion. It's going to bring everybody together, but that's what they build the internet as too. And look at it. Look at what the internet's done to our society right now. It's like polarized every single thing we have. You know. Oh yeah, it's it's worrying to me. At the same time, like so, I feel like it's a tool like anything else, right? You can use it to build or you can use it to like destroy, you know? And yeah. So who knows? I mean, I I think like you said, I think I would hope that like people who are doing that have like some level of awareness and responsibility about the stuff that they're doing. But I don't, I think most of like how we get presented things is very slanted and skewed, you know? And I've, I mean, even for myself where I think things that could be beneficial later, I'm like, Oh, this is, there's something insidious about this. Like when I first read that American cosmic book, I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. And then like thinking about it a little bit more, I'm like, no, this is weird. And this is like planting seeds kind of, especially like in this kind of fringe, like culture kind of that maybe you and I are more involved in where it's like kind of these, these ideas that are not so mainstream, but it like muddies the water with a lot of that stuff. um, Right. Yeah. And it, it kind of brings people into the fringe with like a weird jaded view too. Like, I, I feel like that book is a little bit more approachable to somebody who, you know, they've heard of UFOs, but they never, you know, did anything else about it or went out of their way to be weird. So when they find a book like that and it strikes a chord within them because they naturally are are turned on to these kind of things, it could give them, I don't know, some kind of like, impression that it's all rosy and that the military's on our right side with this stuff but at the same time it's like why would they have lied about it for 60 years and then chosen the lead singer of blink 182 to be the the spokesperson so like i don't know how many people are going to be sold by that anyways no yeah it's, it's funny how that whole thing i mean i think that like turned everybody off on ufos almost maybe that was maybe that was the plan you know <laughs> like how do we get, get people stop thinking about this shit oh get tom get tom DeLong out there. <laughs> yeah yeah definitely well i wonder man i mean is there anything we left off the table here that you've been researching lately that you feel like you want to talk to somebody about this is a yeah. place to do it there's one thing so okay i'm talking about back about like me just like noticing things and like decoding stuff um so I've been, I've been listening to actually i heard you talking about jedi mind tricks recently um on one of your podcasts i love i love jedi mind dude like that's like if i could describe what my artwork is it would be like the first jedi mind tricks album the psycho sociological i love that you know that? yes I love yes that I, love I, I love that I stuff when i was like a teenager i didn't know what any of it meant you know and i re-listen to that stuff now and i'm like oh my god i know everything Vinny's talking about you know, but anyway, so I was, I was, I've been listening to a lot of this 90s hip hop and I'm like, I'm just thinking in my head, like how a lot of this stuff is like very occulty, like, especially like the nine, like the nineties stuff. It's like super, like they're talking about a lot of these subjects where I'm like, how would these people like be into this stuff? You know? So I'm at a bar one day, like getting lunch, like a bar at my house and they got TV on and they got, do you remember that, that the Wu-Tang video triumph? It was off their double double album. I remember the song, but I don't know if I've seen the music video. But yeah, I'm familiar with the song. So, so the video, I mean, I, I saw this that came out in like the 90s, I think, or maybe like 99 or 2000 or something. And I'd probably seen this video. Like I was super like into that stuff in like the 90s. I was watching like 
those videos all the time. And I'm watching it at the bar again. You know, this is 20 years later after this. And I'm just like, I haven't seen the video in however, however many years. And I'm like, there's a scene in it. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, that's a tarot card. I'm like, he's hanging from a tree. And then the next scene, he's upside down from the tree. I'm like, that, that's the hangman right there. And then the next scene comes and I'm like, wait, that's another tarot card. And then I'm thinking about the whole video because it's already halfway through. And I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. Every single scene in this video is a tarot card. Wow. And I'm like, huh, that's really, really weird. And I looked it up on the internet to see if anybody did any research about that ever. And I found one guy who made a, who made a YouTube video about it. And, and I think he mislabeled some of the... Uh, like imagery. Cause I think he had like, it starts with like old dirty bastard on top of this building, which is like the tower, but it's also the fool is like ODB is like kind of portrayed as that. And then you start looking at like the imagery of Wu-Tang and kind of what they're talking about. And I'm just like, this is so interesting. Like these guys are, these guys are playing with all this occult imagery in like the nineties, but it's presented as like, like nobody would know like what any of this means unless you were super into like the golden dawn or like that, that specific like tarot stuff, you know? And uh, I was like, wow, how did, how did that even like, how would they come about that? And that's the, I looked that up too. And I was like, so apparently like a lot of like early, like nineties hip hop, the, a lot of those dudes were five percenters. You ever heard of that? Yeah. The, is that the nation of Islam? It's a break off of nation of Islam. Actually. It was right. like, it's like a more like, it was a, like nation of Islam was like in a lot of like urban communities, like the eighties and nineties, but they were very strict about like, they didn't do drugs. They had a dress code. And like that, this one guy left and he kind of started this five percenter where it was kind of like presenting the same ideas with a little more leniency with your, like what the members would have to do. And it was also built in more of like a cell, cell like structure where there wasn't like, like a head guy with a bunch of people below him. It was like one person would teach two more people. And then those two people would each teach two people. Right. And that's how Wu-Tang actually started. They started as five percenters where like it was either Rizza or Jizza like taught the other dude and old dirty. And then those two taught like two, two of the other members, you know what I mean? But yeah. It was so interesting. I was like, Oh, that's so cool that like they're, they're throwing this stuff in there and nobody would kind of even like pick up on this unless you knew kind of a lot about this, this history. Like well, just the history. What came to mind for me was be the, the wiser, the largest metaphysical bookstore in the world, I think, or one of the oldest is in New York City or was in New York City up until like 10 or 15 years ago. And, and that could be a reason. I mean, New York City has that kind of metaphysical sort of appeal. But then also Wu-Tang, Wu-Dang. I spoke to a guy named David Wei, who's a Wu-Dang monk. And the way he described it to me is that the Wu-Dang monks are like the more laid back monks in China and, and they're not as strict as like the, the guys you see in the orange robes, the Shaolin. They're more like uh, metaphysical and, and yeah. mystical monks, you know? So it's yeah. interesting that they called themselves like the Wu-Tang, Wu-Dang. And obviously Shaolin was a big part of their whole verbiage that they would use but at the same time it is it is like there's a lot of similarities there man i wouldn't put it past them at all no i and i'm i'm i mean i'm convinced of this like i i, yeah. I know like that that they're specifically each scene is a tarot card and then even like so so tarot cards are kind of based well there's all these different origins of where they came from but like the the sequence of the trump cards in medieval times was based off um medieval processions like parades where like you would have the, like one thing after the other and each one, it was like a hierarchy basically. And you okay. know what they were called? They were called triumphs, which is the name of the video. Wow. 
Yeah. So I'm like, oh, 100%. That's what this is, you know? Wow. Yeah. Well, even the word Trump and triumph, I mean, the Trump cards, the triumph cards. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if there was a mistranslation somewhere yeah, along I'm the sure. road. Yeah, I'm sure that's kind of where that, I'm sure that's probably where that came from, honestly. Wow. Uh, but I'm like, yeah, I'm like, they're putting it into their stuff, you know? And like, and the, I remember like Jizza, there's like the one line, which I think somebody else, I think Jedi Mind might even sampled it. And it's like the dumb are mostly intrigued by the drum. Yes. Yes. You know? I've, oh, that's, that <laughs> one part has always stood out to me. It's in the Army of the Pharaohs album. I think the, the first album that they did. And, and yes, yes. The dumb will be <laughs> intrigued by the drum yeah, or something like that. For most people but if you know yes. the symbols and you're initiated then it means something else to you, you well know? and even the lyrics themselves like i noticed that as a young kid like trying to turn some of my friends onto that style of rap music because everybody liked rap but they all listened to the radio crap and i would tell them like no no no. do you get eventually i asked them I'm like do you guys listen to the lyrics or the beats because like that came like a question on Facebook or something. I saw like, do you listen to the music for lyrics or beats? And everybody said beats. It was very rare. <laughs> right. Right. I think a lot of people that like podcasts are probably more that way anyways, because it's just something about listening to things that, but I just, yeah, that I don't want to call my friends dumb, but at the same time, there's like a frequency shift that occurred in me when I listened to this stuff and then was aware of it. It was like, oh, this is a tool, a technology, as you put it before. And in that way, Wu-Tang, Vinnie Paz, the whole group of the Army of the Pharaohs, for the most part, they dropped those seeds in yep. my lap and in a lot of other people's laps. And these gardens were planted. I took it to find more info in books and stuff. But I tell people all the time, like it was... It was very, it was very significant. The the whole underground rap culture for who I became. I even mentioned it today. The like landscaping with my dad. That's that was my only relief was listening to that <laughs> rap music while I was like fucking weed whacking and shit. It's like, so yeah, man. Oh wow, I'm so glad you took it there because there's there's so many routes you can go. I actually just started a, a side podcast along with this podcast that's only on Spotify where I'm going to be showing people some of my favorite underground rap songs, just like putting them together in little playlists and, and putting them out with commentary. Cause you can do that with anchor. I don't use anchor for this podcast, but I it's free. So I'm going to do it and maybe get some people into that stuff. Oh, dude, that'd be awesome. If, if you ever need somebody to talk with about that stuff, I would yeah. love to hear all of that. Have, oh. you, have you heard that um, the Vinny Pass solo album? Which one? Uh, I think it's Season of the Assassin, but it has that song yeah. end, end of Days on it where he's like, oh. he sings, he sings <laughs> at the beginning and stuff. You know? That was the first time I heard David Icke. That was yeah, that was where it all happened. That's awful. <laughs> so he, you know he just came out with a new Jedi Mind album and he kind of did a response to that song. No, I did not. I did not see yeah. that it was a response, but I saw the new album. Tell yeah, me it just, more. It just came out. Yeah. He kind of talks about it where he's like, where he talks about some of his lyrics in that song, how he should have like, he, he's, I think he talked about like how the skeletons on the moon. He's like, I don't know if that was right. He's like, but you got to need to do your own research and about stuff. And he's like, he's like, and I've been right more times than I've been wrong about this stuff, but he kind of acknowledges the same thing we're talking about, how like some of this stuff is like planted in certain places and in fringe culture for people to get out there. You know what I mean? And just see what sticks almost, you know? And like music is a great vehicle for that. Well, uh, 
we're bringing it full circle because Vinny Paz is from Philly, and I'm almost certain if he's not Nation of Islam, he might be five percenter because he definitely has a lot of like Islamic oh, okay. sort of yeah. yeah for sure. But but yeah, he's from Philly, which is another like bringing it full circle. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it's he's I love that dude stuff. It's really really smart. <laughs> right on. Yeah, brother. Well, I got to ask you, given all the work you do and, and the realms you travel through in your mind, does your family think you're crazy? Oh, yeah. When I told <laughs> them I was going to be on this podcast, like, oh, that's perfect for you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love I got, it, man. I got two kids, a five-year-old and a 12-year-old. The 12-year-old is just like, my five-year-old's a little more receptive because she's like, she's little still. My 12-year-old is just like rolling her eyes at me all day. You know what I mean? So, you know, oh, I, I try not to like, Especially lately, I don't want to like burden them with a lot of this kind of stuff because I feel like it also creates a lot of like pessimism, I think, in some people where they just think they have like they're not going to have any control. And I think that's what a lot of like kind of conspiracy culture is, is I think that's one of the purposes for it. It's like makes you think that there's these like higher ups that are like orchestrating everything and that we don't have any control over our own lives where it's like we, we do have a lot of control. We have we we kind of create the reality that we want you know what i mean and you can you can look at everything through a negative lens like that but there's also ways to be positive about about the things going on and it's not just it's always the apocalypse for somebody you know what i mean it's what i kind of always been thinking lately yeah it's always the end times for somebody i i love that you put it that way because given everything we talked about it's like they're only able to influence the world so much because we're ignorant of the way that they influence the world, right? So as you put it, they want us to think that, oh yeah, you can't you can't possibly stop the CIA and stuff, but you could remote view. I could remote view if we put enough time into it. If they're using that, we can all take advantage of that. And wow, yeah, it's it's so much deeper than that. But that's why I try to bring a positive spin on it with this show and, and go into these things with, with hope because I don't think at all that we're, we're heading towards doom and gloom despite some of the messages you might get from some of the guests. I think for the most part, the fact that a podcast like this exists and like Tinfall Hat is as popular as it is <laughs> means that we're we're doing something beneficial to wake people up and i'm just gonna keep riding that wave brother and i know your art does that for a lot of people like the right people seem to be drawn to you you're not one of these pair of shoes tattoo artists so i appreciate that brother and next time i have a, a chance i definitely want to make my way down to philly and, and maybe i'll get a, my first tattoo from you i don't know yeah i'd love to start to do that for you well, this has been a, a true pleasure. Please tell folks where they can find your art. If you got a website, I, I know you have an Instagram. I'll be sure to put that in the description, but where else can folks follow up with you? Yeah, I have an Instagram. It's at H and then my last name, H-A-B-L-A-K. And then my website is henryhablack.com. H-A-B-L-A-K is how you spell my last name. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate anybody check my stuff out. I sell all kinds of like t-shirts and prints online. And a lot of it has to do with like, ancient cultures, weird occultism, and uh, just just anything I'm really interested in that I'm kind of researching and just like want to put in my art and kind of share. Right on. Well, it's been a pleasure, brother. And thank you for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, wherever you are in the now. 